This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. Listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I N A C I T Y L I K E Y O U R S dot C O M. For links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Colin tells the story of when in 2001, he journeyed to India at the age of 24 to help film a documentary on an important Hindu bathing ritual which was to take place along the Ganges River. During his visit, he soaked in the culture and even met the Dalai Lama. This trip would last for 30 days and would change his life. Here is Colin's story. My name is Colin Bressler. Um, in, I live in San Antonio, Texas. By way, I, I'm from uh, New York City and Florida. So the year was 2001. It was January. Um, I happened to be, um, the backdrop of it is, I happened to be in India. I arrived in India, I remember it vividly, January 3rd, 2001. I had rarely at this time in my life been outside of the country. So I had about a year previous, I had been to Spain for uh, about a 10 day project I was working on uh, with a friend. And that was the actual first time I had left the country to fly over the ocean, so to speak. So I had gotten involved in a project to fly over to India and it was a sort of a humanitarian sort of documentary experience that we were in, I was involved in and we flew into India and the flight had been expanded to being even longer I believe at the time it was about a 15-hour flight but when I the flight we took there was issues with the Delhi, the New Delhi airport's power. So because the power was out, we were stranded in Zurich, Switzerland for about a day. Uh, it was actually about 14 hours or so. So we got to experience Zurich, Switzerland for a little bit and then finally got on the plane. So as you can imagine at this point, we are, me and the 20 other Americans I was flying with, got to India and we we're pretty jet lagged. And I remember the, the feeling of uh, almost hallucinatory experience of I, I struggled to sleep on planes at the time so I barely had slept it probably had been over a day at this point and so we land in India and I'd never been like I said to a, to a place quite like this and you come out and the airport's filled with people you know looking at you because we obviously looked a little different uh, we're clearly from the west most likely America from their from their perspective and so we, we, we arrive, we get out, we jump into a, a, a little bus, uh, sort of van slash bus uh, vehicle. And my, the, the man who hired me or brought me out there with him, um, who was sort of overseeing this whole art, art installation, documentary, anthropological study thing, was this charismatic guy and he brought us all out there and he he had been to india multiple times and he told me he said hey just so you know this 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 ride's going to be about 18 hours i said 18 hours we're just uh, okay <laughs> you know and he said it's actually not the distance isn't very far it's just that the the the, the drive itself with the roads and it, it's just a very different place here you know and i remember Early on in, in that drive, probably within the first few hours, 
everybody was had gotten their energy back. We were all really excited looking out the window at this incredible countryside. And I remember one of our, um, one of the local Indian fixers who was there to sort of, there were two of them and one of them uh, who was there to sort of, they were there to sort of help us get around, translate language issues, um, whatever, right? Whatever we needed, they were fixers. And so he told me, I had struck up a conversation with him and we were talking, his English was quite good. And he told me, he said, Colin, the one thing I'll tell you is about India for a Westerner is don't overthink India, just let it wash over you. And I remember to this day, I still think about that when he told me that. And so, like I said, I, I, I wouldn't say I was someone who was um, sheltered, but you know, I, I had, hadn't had ex that many experiences outside of the, the, the comfortability of my little, my, my American life, so to speak. And so we're driving on a bus. And one of the things I, I, I remember on that ride, like I said, it was about 18 hours. You know, and when we had arrived in India, it was it was already late afternoon, and so and it was January, so the the, the sun set. You know, probably a few hours after the ride had started, so a lot of the ride was at night. And I remember watching. I, I sat near the back, and you could see through the aisle of the the middle of the bus vehicle. You could see out the front window, and I remember look. I remember being like a lot of people had fallen asleep at this point, but I I just was jet lagged. I couldn't sleep. And I remember looking through the front window and seeing this insane, amazing, scary, frightening game of chicken happening between the, the van or and or bus, whatever you want to call it. Let's just call it a van from here on out. The van that was, it, it seemed like we must have been on a road that was about one lane or one and a half lanes and the trucks and cars were coming right at us. And at the last minute, each each of us decided to go one way or another and you had to sort of pick a side and I remember being at first horrified and frightened by this but then as time went on I sort of almost just let it be what it was and it became kind of almost like a game and it was kind of fun actually kind of crazy so after like I said after about 18 hours we finally arrive in the in the city um and and we were we were like I said we were sort of the whole point was to have us sort of embedded in this culture and embedded in this experience. And the experience we were there to document was a bathing ritual called the Maha Kumela, which is a Hindu bathing ceremony about Nirvana or, or and I'm probably butchering this, but it's, it's about like, you know, you bathe in this river, it's in, in a Western sense, it's the stairway to heaven and it cleanses you of your sins and it sort of cleanses you of, of any misdeeds or, or, or bad feelings or whatever, right? So it's this important Hindu spiritual festival. And again, before I had come, I had very limited knowledge of India. I had dated a, an Indian woman in high school. I learned a little bit through her, but very little. And um, at this time, I was about 24 years old. Um, I remember going to Barnes and Noble and 14th Street in New York City to prepare and reading all the those little handbooks they have for travel. That's literally the research I had done on this, and then, you know, shamefully, admittedly. But and so, you know, once we arrived, we 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 packed all, we got all our stuff settled and everything. And the key I want to explain in the backdrop of everything, the main por portion of my story is that, you know, we didn't really have a home. It wasn't like there was Airbnbs or things like that. We didn't have, the, the guy that brought us out there didn't have resources to put us up in a hotel. So we actually, we slept in this abandoned skeleton of a building. I'm, when I say skeleton, I mean, it had no windows, no doors. There was no, it was just this concrete structure. And I had, before going, I had bought a, a very inexpensive two-man tent from, uh, from Kmart at the time. And I brought that with me for this exact reason, because I, I didn't know. We weren't really given a lot of information about what was gonna happen. So when we got there, I didn't, you know, I just wanted to be prepared for everything. And I'm kind of like a little bit crazy with this kind of stuff. So I was like, I need to know where I'm sleeping. I need to know all this stuff. So everybody's looking around and they had, they had built these sort of cot, wooden cot things and they had stacked them. So there was like these sort of bunk bed areas and all this kind of stuff, but all of it, keep in mind was exposed to the elements meaning there was like a cloth overhang that that sort of blocked you i guess from the rain maybe but short of that mosquitoes bugs um the heat all that stuff the cold because at night it got kind of cold there was a desert sort of climate where we were 
So you were exposed to this 24 seven when they were. So I was so happy. I got my, I was the only person with a tent. So I actually put my tent on the roof, which was also just exposed, clean roof. I put my tent, I remember I put it kind of close to the edge and I always, always kind of was, had this moment of thinking like, what if I roll over in my sleep and take the whole tent off the side of the building, which at this point I was about three stories above the ground to my demise. Um, and so that's, so, so that's where we were sleeping and the, and the home, like I said, it didn't, didn't have amenities. We had to go to the restroom into a hole in the ground uh, that was downstairs off to the house. That was the bathroom. It wasn't a toilet. Um, you know, it was very, very rustic and and uh, and I, I don't know the words, but it was very um, sparse, sparse conditions. But, you know, the truth is that we were there for around 30 something days and I actually really got very used to it and it wasn't much of a problem for me which i was i was very proud of myself and also shocked that i had had made the adjustment that that simply but i remember the first day and so like i said this was this was a hindu bathing ceremony it was also january 24th which was in the future at this point 20 20 something days into the future um there was going to be the the, the culmination of the event where about roughly uh, 35 million people were going to be coming to the waters to bathe. They said it was at the time going to be the largest gathering of human beings in the history of the world. I don't know if that's true. I can't fact check that. Feel free to the 2001 Maha Kumela. So this was sort of hanging over a backdrop of, of a lot of stuff because I remember on the plane even talking about it and people telling me, the anthropologist telling me that there's been a lot of death at these events because they're stampeding and all these kind of things. And so I, I always had that in the back of my mind. But the other thing is uh, across the river from our skeleton building house, there was the event. We were literally across the river Ganges in, in, or Ganga River in India. And across that river was where the, the, the bathing ritual ceremonies all took place. And they had built all these incredible elaborate tent I would even call them almost like tent palaces or temp tent temples. Um, they were incredible, incredible things to see. And so we, um, the first day we got in there, we settled in briefly. And then Casey, the guy who brought us out there said, Hey, you know, let's go, let's go over there. Let's go peruse. And it was already open and there was stuff. There were people selling things and there was food and things like that. It was kind of akin to an event that we would have here, like a, you know, rock, festival or a musical festival in in a way um just smaller it's bigger than than those festivals and so we cross over on a, on this rickety little boat that these men were just literally uh bringing people to and from each each coastline or whatever each each river line river bank and they'd bring you across pay them a little bit of money get out and so i start walking around i had never as i said this is the first real true experience of India. I'm, I'm jet, I'm so tired. It's now probably seven, eight, nine in the morning. Haven't really slept much at all. I'm deli like delirious. And, um, we walk around. I remember vividly seeing the colors were amazing. There were people everywhere, animals roaming free everywhere, dogs, cows, pigs, you name it, just running free. And, um, I just remember being kind of blown away by it. And so, as it had gone on, we, we, I ended up, we all sort of ended up splitting up the 20 some odd Americans. And I ended up with a, a group of about four people. I, like I said, I had just pretty much met that, you know, that day, that the last 24 hours or so. And so they start taking me around and we go into a few of these guru tents and these they're tents with men in there and they're religious leaders called gurus and sadhus also is another name. And they, they, you go in there and they bless you and they talk to you and, and, most of these men did not speak English. Um, and I just sat there and I listened to a man talk. I didn't know what he was saying. I was, but I was still enamored and blown away by the, the situation. And I remember that they had given us this little, little itty bitty balls of like black balls. They were like chewy. And I was told you had to, you know, when in Rome, so to speak. So I chewed, I took it and started chewing on it and I ate it. <laughs> little did I know what they were some form of drug to sort of hallucinogenic type material. So I get out of the, you know, we, we, we finished up with that. I come out of the tent and 
I start to sort of wander off because I'm sort of just, my brain is starting to just go crazy and out there and I'm just smiling and laughing for no reason and such. And so now I'm in this foreign country I've never been in. I'm under the influence. I'm, you know, looking at the sights and looking at this experience and just absolutely in over my head is really how I would say it. And I, lo and behold, I turn around and there's, there's a, an international TV news crew. I'd be lying if I said I remember where they were from, but they did speak English. They looked Western, you know, maybe European or something. And they come up to me and they go, oh, you know, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, New York. And they go, well, what do you think of the, the coom? which is like the short vernacular for the event. And I said, oh, you know, and I'm not kidding you. I go on a rant for, I, I don't know. Like I said, I was under the influence. It could have been 30 seconds. It felt like an hour. And I just went off and on and on about colors and lights and the beauty of the world and all this kind of stuff. I was rescued by one of the anthropologists that found me and probably saw me just spewing whatever it was coming out of my mouth. She grabs me, says, all right, he's good. And they were like, okay, thanks. And they weren't upset that I left, but they were probably happy that I finally had finished. But I, uh, I, I left them and then spent the rest of the day with her. And she was just so brilliant. You know, she was an anthropologist, had been to India multiple times, knew everything was telling me. And it was kind of important because I got, even though I still was under the influence, I was kind of had brought you know, I slowly came back to my, my functions and and she taught me about the, the customs and she would show me things. Say, oh, this is their man hold hands here. Oh, okay. You know, and, and it's not a thing, you know, and or and they're friends or whatever. Or or they you do this or you do that. And and I got this incredible lesson. So as the time passed in this event, every day we'd you know, sleep, get up early because you're in a tent. So everybody's waking up at crack of dawn because of the light of, of the sun. We get up, go across, have find food. Now food was also sparse as well because it was mostly bending or you could eat in the guru's tents where they would have these elaborate, incredible meals laid out for you. And it was some of the most incredible food. You'd sit on a mat and you'd eat off a giant banana leaf or some leaf some giant leaf and there'd be these just rice and different kind of things and um and sometimes you just buy a vendor buy samosas from a vendor for like no no money at all the backstory to that is i had about 80 dollars american dollars with me and the 80 dollars ended up lasting me the almost the entire trip it wasn't until the last few days that i actually had to dip excuse me had to dip into a credit card um but so each day we kept going back and forth and each day was about meeting these different gurus and we would film them and interview them and talk to them and 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 just taking in this entire event and and like i said i was always at a default of one i didn't know the language i brought a little guidebook that had a lot of translations and i tried and i learned some words and you know i, I even tried to have conversations with it that were these ridiculous conversations but you know that i've just broken you know broken hindi me ranting or whatever but and so as time went on we we, we you know we went back and forth and after a while I, I just you know it was all it was almost too much and i started to like just kind of lose myself a little bit i guess in the whole thing and the whole experience in that you know a lot of it, like I said, was a spiritual and religious experience. And I didn't really grow up in, in, in a way that I was ultra brought up in a certain church or a certain theology. And so this is all absolutely new to me. I knew nothing about Hinduism or anything. And so, but it was also all encompassing, you know, every day was about this and we would meet different gurus. And some of the gurus who met her were, were massive, massive celebrities in, in India. And I mean, celebrities, I mean, like, were incredibly famous and, and well-received and, um, you know, were chauffeured around and had bodyguards and stuff like that. And um, I remember trying so desperately to sort of grab hold of, of something and needing that and not understanding why I needed that so much. You know, I, I, I was so confused by this urge inside of me to, to, to have things make sense for me and my culture and like my customs. Um, and it was sort of like, and I remember a couple of the Americans that were a little fresher, like me, 
and not the ones like the anthropologists I had previously talked about. I remember them actually saying similar things that there was sort of this feeling of like a constant pressure and pushing against, you know, sort of your instincts and wanting things to sort of unfold the way you needed them to, the way you felt they they should. And so eventually, uh, you know, over probably 15 days in, uh, we get word that the Dalai Lama of the Buddhist faith, the famous Dalai Lama was was actually here at the at the event. Uh, it was early in the morning and this was brought shockwaves through us because obviously him being an internationally famous person and, and a big deal, um, we all wanted to meet him and, and film him and talk to him. And so the, the people that sort of put the event together, our, our event, I mean, our, our group, um, said, you know, look, look, we're gonna we're gonna spend part of the day. We're gonna go find out who his people are, how we get in touch with them, and, and we need to meet him. We get it. So you guys do your thing. We're gonna. So we said, yeah, yeah, no, please, that'd be amazing. We'll all meet back, you know, X amount of time. So we went, went off, and did our thing, and did some cool stuff. And then later, uh, Ken, the guy that I was working with, Kenneth Ang, comes. You know, we recoup, we reorganize, and says, "Look, we're we're all in about an hour. We're all going to head over, and we're going to meet the Dalai Lama and, and interview him and talk to him." So we all head over to the Dalai Lama. He was actually like a sort of a guest of one of the bigger, bigger tents, the bigger groupings, um, and uh, one of the guru that he was there with was a massive, massively important uh, religious leader in India. And so we all go over there, and I remember distinctly noticing how different this man's uh, environment was than the other places I'd been on the place. And we had walked past it a few times, and it had these giant, giant entranceway, orange um, entranceway made of cloth, but spun around metal. So they were like they, they looked like um, two towers, almost like a castle made of, of cloth. And you go through there, and then there's this giant open area where they have like a concert area stage where you musicians would play, or or there would be speeches made. And I just remember it, it being, I think, probably one of the most, if not the most, impressive structures and places. So we get there, and we're ushered in, and there's these kind of bodyguard type guys. And the Dalai Lama actually had these men, a couple of men around him, that had uh, sort of looked like. Kalashnikov AK 47s. Uh, I remember this being important because I just, it was like the first time I had seen sort of guns, you know, in a long time. And I remember being a little intimidated by it because it just, you know, we hadn't seen it. And the police even didn't really have guns there. They had like nightsticks. So it was just a little jarring. It was like, oh wow, the Dalai Lama has uh, bodyguards with right, assault rifles. And so they usher us into this, this, this smaller, tent area off to the side and when i say tent these are like structures i just i'm lacking a better word for it but a sort of tent building and so we go into it and the dalai lama is there and we sit down on the floor and i was a you know being a being somebody who's brought up in the camera world I, i've always been a fly on the wall i'm not someone who would interject a lot in a, in a scenario like that it wasn't really about me i wanted them the anthropologists and people like that to be able to say what they had to say so i just really sort of sat back into the back of the room and just sort of watched in awe um because this is a person i knew and and and, and like i said that butting up against that needing for some commonality or something i can hold on to it oh yeah i recognize this you know i recognized him you know and, and i i knew him and I, and I had dabbled in buddhism here and there throughout my life i was always curious about it i read a couple of different books and so it was like a there was a this really nice feeling that set over me about being around him and i and he was very sweet and joking around with us and making us laugh and he, i remember his smile being infectious and we wrapped up and he said okay you know look look you're my guest like come to my speech you know and i'm about to speak and everything he goes i hope i don't bore you and fall make you fall asleep and we're all, ah you know it's really cute and funny and so we all laughed and i set up my my camera in the back and he goes he's in the front on the speed on this on the stage and he gives his speech and it was a beautiful beautiful speech beautiful speech and he spoke in english actually and they translated him into hindi and, her, and we finished up and I was in really in my, my element trying to get the shots I needed to get and all those kind of things. 
And so when it all wrapped up, we got our stuff together and we're, we're leaving and we sort of had a breakdown of like where everyone sort of went their own ways and everything sort of fell apart. I didn't really have any directive and I didn't really want any directive. I really wanted some time because of this experience. And so I, my assistant and me, we, we both kind of like set out, just decided to take, you know, some time to, without the camera and without our experience, you know, the, any job related things, just, let's just go walk around. So we, we went out and walked around and I remember, I remember this, this is a seminal moment for me in that, um, faith and, and, and spirituality have always been something that I've, because I was, I was raised in like nothing, no sort of denomination and, and not, these things have, have, have been there, right. Cause they're part of our culture. And, but it was something I've always sort of felt different than a lot of people in. And so being at a Hindi Hindu festival and, and being around this for, at this point, you know, two, a little over two weeks straight with no respite, no, nowhere out, you know, mentally to go. Um, and then meeting this incredible, wonderful, beautiful, you know, Dalai Lama with his beautiful stories and personality and Buddhism entering into the equation. I started to walk around and I sort of like, neither her and I talked, we just sort of walked next to each other. And I remember the vivid imagery in front of my face, in front of my eyes of, this was all on sand, it was a desert almost, right up until a river. And I remember it was kind of windy and the wind was whipping the dust all over the place. And the light was kind of low in the sky at this point, so it was creating these incredible light almost shows, the sunlight streaming through things. And like I said, it was getting to that sort of twilight, dusky time of day. It was gorgeous. And I looked around and I saw people. You would look to your right and there'd be people praying or talking. You look to your left and there's a, there's a group, a band playing and people sort of meditating around them. Um, and you walk around and you just see people everywhere. Little mopeds, people on bicycles, elephants every now and again walking past you. And I remember having this distinct thought that I thought to myself, I said, you know, my whole life has been one of sort of like thinking about like where I fit in in the spiritual conversation of human condition. And I never knew, I never felt even comfortable in that space. I felt that, well, you haven't, you never, you never really went to church. You didn't go to synagogue. You didn't go to the mosque. You didn't, you know, whatever. And I always felt probably a little bit of guilt for that as well, but always felt sort of like I didn't belong in that sphere. And it wasn't until that day that walking out of that speech and walking down the sh that little, I, I wouldn't call it a street, but a dirt path um, where I started to think to myself that at first it was simple. It was a very simple statement in my mind, which was, well, there's a billion people in this country and over a billion people and not all of them, but a large majority of them believe in Hinduism, which is a religion I'm now being absorbing on a scale I never thought I would. And there's a cross section of people in this country that believe in that are Sikhs, a totally different thing. And there's a majority of those people in this country that are Muslim. Another religion, by the way, all three of these religions are pretty foreign to me, to my experience. And so I just remember thinking in, in the context of the Dalai Lama, in the context of, of this Hindu experience, I remember thinking that, well, you know, maybe it's, it's not that faith is like, I, I've always thought that like, well, who's right or who's wrong. And I, it was the moment where I realized maybe it's not about right or wrong. Maybe it's that everyone is right and that spiritual, your, your spiritual being is that thing that you recognize within yourself and that faith that, that you, that you, that you work with or you bring into that experience that you have. Maybe that faith is, you know, is your guide for that. And that, you know, I, I just remember feeling this incredible sense of, you know, eh, I, I just can't imagine anyone is, being, is wrong. 
in this. And and like I said, I you have to understand that I really felt that there had to be a right or wrong. And it was the first time in my life that I started thinking that there isn't a like that doesn't make any sense. And I think it was because I needed to see other the all the rest of the world experiencing these things. And so and and for me I needed to to you know take that in and understand that like all the judgments and all the experience I've had for the 24 years of my life at that point had led me to this place where you know I I I remember a, a really strong sense of relief and freedom in a lot of ways about my experience that day and that I I felt like a giant you know weight had been lifted and now I was sort of like on a new chartered path towards sort of just being more open and also not worrying about these questions but allowing sort of the 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 question the new questions to to live and to permeate and to go try to find some of the answers to them and it really the rest of my trip there uh we had we still stayed for another 10 days or so and 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 like i had said earlier that July January 24th day happened and and that was a whole nother thing <laughs> but but all of it i was left I, i never left that that feeling in that moment and ever since then i i i've been a much more open open-minded person i've been much more trying to be much more aware that you know my experience is my experience i can't expect others to adhere to my experience or even to adhere to my worldview Hey, what's up guys? This is Chris Rostalia breaking the fourth wall. If you enjoy our show, you can find it on YouTube. Just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment or just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment on anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And also you can find us on all the social media. Just look for Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And I will catch you on the other side. Wow, what a what an uh, an experience to to have gone through. I imagine it's you know it sounds to me like it's something that really touched you in such a huge way and and shaped your your existence from where you were before and then to where you are now. Uh, were you hallucinating every day of the the event or just that first day? Just the first day. Yeah, uh, they they there was um, a little bit of. Uh, I, I don't know if you ever heard of the term chillum but there's it's it's sort of like a, a hash sort of marijuana type thing um it's very low grade and and not you know I I did a little bit of that after but not much I'm not a big drug person I'm not also against like whatever but but um I uh no it's just that first day was the only time I had eaten anything and it was only because like I said I was overwhelmed and I just sort of it was kind of like when in Rome and I felt like I had to once i had gotten more accustomed to everything and gotten sort of my 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 base to my feet i i was able to sort of like say no to certain things when i needed to or say yeah you know like i was able to navigate better but i wasn't really prepared at that moment to like do anything it was just sort of overwhelming <laughs> well um how about the bathing ritual now is that something that that happened on the 24th or the 26th well the whole time the the 24th the whole time they had been bathing right so like when i did when you did that boat crossing that i mentioned earlier you you would see people in the river and they would sort of do this it was almost like a dance of bobbing in and out of the water and they they were not everyone of course but a lot of people i mean the joy and people would be smiling and laughing and 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 really enjoying it and um and so you it was always happening i think it's just that the 24th was the culmination And so that was sort of like the big day. In a way it's almost like um I don't know, trying to think of something that relates to us, but you know, it's it's almost like imagine like Christmas and New Year's and how, you know, we have Christmas and then all in, you know, a week later we do New Year's, you know. So it's like it's like oh everyone, New Year's Eve, everyone go out, you know, go have a party or go go downtown or whatever. So it's like, you know, that that day was the biggest was the biggest day again i unfortunately i should know but i don't know the actual pure significance of the day but it was january 24th 2001 and it was it was millions and millions of people 
Wow. Uh, did, did you participate in the bathing ritual or is that something you just, just observed? I did not. Um, and again, uh, some of them did. Some of uh, the people that were, that guy Ken I, I mentioned earlier, like he, he did. I'm sure Casey did. I didn't witness Casey doing it. Um, I'm a bit of a germ phobe and I was really nervous about the, the water. The water was pretty mucky, so to speak, with all these people bathing. Also, the thing to keep in mind is this. So this area of, of the river is, um, is actually where, where three rivers meet. The Ganga River, Ganges River is, is the main one, but like three other rivers, I think the Yamuna and another one, I forget the other name. But so this area, the literally the, the head of this river where they're all three are meeting is where the stairway to heaven is. And so people go there all the time to bathe. It's just that this is like the pilgrimage day, you know, event. And it happens every two to, I think it's every two years is, is a certain Mela, every four years is the Kum Mela. And that's what this was, the Kumela? Yeah, and, and this one, 2001, it's happened again, I think. Every 12 years, it's a it's it's got much more significance. And I remember when I had gotten there, the, some of the anthropologists were saying, you're like, Colin, you know, you're, you're part of a, a historic thing here. Like, this is a big deal. Because I think it was the 12th one, 12 years. It had been 12 years, but it was the 84. Whatever the cycle is, it was the penultimate you know was the ultimate sorry the ultimate one it, it, it was the 112th one or whatever you know and so it just had a lot of significance in, in Hindu religion the numbering of things and I think that the 2001 one uh, Kumela was a, was a massive event so you could just say you've met the Dalai Lama I mean not a lot of yeah. people can say that that's pretty awesome yeah it was, it was like I said it, it was uh, like I you know not only was he identifiable, which I can't tell you how important it was um, for me, uh, but also, as you said, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, again, for me, I mean, just you, 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 you look at his face and you look into his eyes and you, you there's such a warmth there, you know, it's, it's indescribable, like compared to most people I've met, there's just, there was such a, like a warmth and a, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain, but it felt good. It felt really good to, to see that, you know. Have you been back to India since? I have not. I have not. I w- I'd like to, but it's, it's a little pricey and it's also such a long trip, you know. So yeah. it's, it's an investment. It's like it's the kind of place that you can't go for five days. I mean, you can, but like it would be brutal to like fly all the way out there and five days later fly back. Yeah, it's something you want to spend spend a little time. Now you said yeah. you were there for for a whole thirty days. Yeah, yeah, we were there for around thirty days a month. Okay, so that culminated into a uh, film, a documentary. Is that available now? It is. I I don't know where. I have to find out because it it was in theaters briefly uh, about two thousand seven, two thousand six, something like that. Um, and, and I think it was available on DVD. Like I said, the, the movie, I mean, it's old, you know, it's been old for time, our time, but you know, it, I think you're talking about it's, it's, it was released, I think at least 16, 17 years ago. So I don't know. I, I know I looked at it recently to see if it was on Amazon prime or anything and I couldn't find it. It's called take me to the river. Okay. Take me to the river. Drop me in the water. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. And it was um, Kenneth Ang directed it. He's a he's a great uh, documentary filmmaker. He has a uh, a movie about his father uh, coming from China and a movie about Japanese baseball, which I actually did. I went to Japan with him, which was a whole other amazing experience. But but yeah, he, he's it was his film. So you've had some really positive experiences in the film industry. I understand you're a filmmaker. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little about your career in, in film business. Why don't you tell us about when it started and how you got interested into in it and uh, what your roles have been? Uh, are you just are you director, uh, cameraman, actor? You know, whatever it is you do in the film industry. So I am professionally. Um, I am a cameraman. I I work in documentaries um, and reality television. 
um, and corporate video, like, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag, but I do a lot of different things. But yeah, that, that's, that's sort of professionally. And um, in the last about 10 years, I got the itch to be a, to be a director. And so I've been, I've been a cameraman for over 20 years. But in the last 10, I, I sort of always loved writing and I always loved telling stories. But I just, you know, I was a cameraman. I, I didn't really want to make the leap. I was scared probably. And so eventually I just said, you know what? A friend of mine, my wife was very supportive and my friend. And it was like, let's just do it. Let's make a film, you know. And so I made a movie that's actually available on Amazon Prime called Sleepover, which is a sort of experimental horror movie. And after that, I just fell in love with it. I, I, I don't think I'll ever not do it. You know, I just, it was so fun and it's so cool to like, to tell a story through a visual medium like film or video, you know, film production. Um, and so, yeah, and in, in terms of camera, like I, you know, I went to film school and everything back in the nineties and got an incredible education in, in film school. And then after that, I just kind of like dived right into the, the, the world of filmmaking and TV and all kinds of different areas. Do you write your films? I do. I do. I, I, well, I do. I co-write them. So I, um, I really enjoy the writing a film with people. It's, I don't really, I don't really like to write alone. I, all four, well, sorry, all three of my last three feature films, um, I wrote, co-wrote with someone. Um, I just, I just like, I, I, I like the collaboration and I love like talking about characters with someone and geeking out about all that stuff. So it's like, so yeah, the answer to that is I do write them, but I, I co-write them, you know, with someone. Well, let's talk a little bit about your last three feature films. Uh, why don't you just uh, describe what each of them are and their names and if they're available still uh, on Amazon or wherever my listeners could probably go back and, and find them. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, yeah, so I... My about three, three and a half years ago, I made a movie called Bloody Drama. It is available on Amazon Prime for, um, you know, uh, streaming. So you can watch it tonight. Um, and then it's also available on DVD at ScreamTimeFilms.com. That's so I had made Sleepover was my first film. And so when I finished that, um, Scream Time Films is, a, is an awesome indie horror company out of Texas. So they reached out to me. I sent them. I sent them a copy. They liked it. They said, "Hey, we want to we want to distribute this." After that, uh, the owner of the company reached out to me and said, "Hey, would you want to make a film for us?" And I said, "Yeah, that sounds amazing." So he actually gave me. He said, "Well, here's how it works for me. I give people. I give you like three or four ideas, and I let you go make them." So he gave me three or four ideas, and I I picked one, and I, it was called Bloody Drama, and it was a slasher movie. I'd never done a slasher movie. I had never thought I'd do a slasher movie. So I did this slasher movie. Like I said, it's available on Amazon Prime. Check it out. You know, these are no budget movies. I have to put that as a as a caveat. I still want you to enjoy them. I still think they're great, but you know, they're no budget movies. And so I made that. That was, you know, um, an amazing experience. And then after that was over, uh, like I said, it was it was in the, the 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 slasher Halloween sort of genre. And I was, I loved it, but I was like, I really, I want to try to do a more character heavier story and a sort of domestic violence, domestic hell, you know, crazy abduction story came to me. So I wrote a film called Domestic Hell with Ivy Lamb was my co-writer on Domestic Hell. I came to her, I said, I got this idea. I don't even know if it's any good. What do you think? And she was like, cause she's a really great playwright here in Texas. And she said, no, it's awesome. It's a great idea. She goes, you know, and it's, it's, it's heavy. It's all about domestic violence and this like serial killer and all this crazy stuff. And so um, we set out, we made that. And at same thing, that is available on Amazon Prime tonight. If you want, grab your popcorn. It's an intense, intense film. Bloody drama is not intense. You know, it's, it's fun. It's, it's a slasher, a little bit of blood, killer, you know. Uh, domestic Hell is, a, is an intense, intense movie. Um, and so, and then after that, I kind of like, I wanted to go in a new direction. And so I made a, I just finished making a film called Remy's Demons, which is right now available on Amazon Prime, uh, just DVD though, for DVD owners. It, the streaming isn't available yet. But Remy's Demons is a, is a, is a, um, a movie about the occult and um, sort of imagine if, um, you know, Carrie's mother 
had an autistic boy and, on the spectrum and her son was raised in sort of the occult witchcraft sort of culture. So that's sort of the backdrop of Remy's Demons and it's a possession story and all kinds of stuff. And and so they're, they're you know, I try to like each film, I try to mix it up and challenge myself, honestly, to be honest. Like that's the biggest thing is I really try to like give myself new challenges to sort of learn. And, and I'll wrap it up by saying, you know, for me, I went to film school in 90, from 94 to 97. Um, I haven't been in film school since 1997. It's a long time. And I've been telling people lately, the last five or six years of my life, I've been calling my second film school. And I have been having so much fun doing it. And I love it every second of it. And it's brutal and it's hard. And it's, but it's so much to learn and so many new things to sort of be educated on. And it's, it's just, it's amazing, miraculous. Well, I'll, I'll in, in the show notes, I'll put links to all those uh, those three films. Thank you. Thank so you. that my guests, my listeners can find it. Uh, what are you working on today? So right now I'm, I'm wrapping up, you know, Remy's Demons in terms of like promotions. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the thing that I found. And if there's any filmmakers out there that are or people that want to make films, you know, the whole thing is uh, so, you know, write a great script and you know organize yourself and, and and make a great movie but then don't forget like that end process of promotion is probably the most important and i have kind of failed on a level of my first my other movies and so this movie i'm you know i'm just trying really hard not to just jump to the next thing next project and not give this film the, the, the service it deserves really for the actors too because you know these people gave their time and effort um to make this movie with me and i they deserve every ounce of my energy so um in terms of that yeah i'm working on a on a on a a screenplay uh for a new movie another sort of micro budget movie um sort of a sci-fi horror story another direction to go in and i'm also developing a, a an episodic television show uh sort of a game of thronesy type thing so that, that's, those are the two major things. I have a couple of uh, TV sizzle reel type things in the works too. But, you know, the whole thing is, it's just like, you know, we, I, we've just all got to keep striving, you know, it's like I can never stop. Well, it seems like it was still, although there are no budget films, they, there's still money involved. Uh, how do you do your, uh, your funding and all? Is there, do you have a uh, GoFundMe account that you send people to, to help you uh, raise the funds for these films? Yeah, so what I've been doing is each film I do an Indiegogo campaign. I just I just really like Indiegogo Indiegogo's platform. So um, I launch I'll launch a campaign once it once the script's ready and I'm, and I'm sort of ready to sort of move forward, start casting. So yeah, I launch launch a campaign. I try to promote it through Facebook, social media, and um, and then also I try to do a lot of networking to businessmen and and local people to try to see if there's anyone that you know you never know if you meet someone about like i said bloody drama i was so fortunate um a man by the name a businessman out of new jersey named joe espinoza um gave me some some funding for that so you you never know you know i mean you meet people along the way and i had done video i have done video work for him for many many years and um i knew he was a great guy and i so so you just got to kind of look around see what's out there and and maybe there's someone that might say you know what i i want to help out i mean let me give you a little bit of money and like i said that my movies have all been you know four thousand to two thousand dollar budgets so uh, doing film is all about connection so it sounds like you've you've made in, in your career since 97 you've made quite a few connections and that's helped you out Oh yeah, absolutely. It's everything. I mean, I I don't know many other industries, so I can't speak on that. But I, I on on other industries. But yeah, this industry is like you have to, you know, because let me put it to you this way: it's not even just that I need to know uh, a guy like Ronald Mercado in my in San Antonio. Uh, guy can do everything. He's like a Swiss Army knife. He acts. He directs. He shoots. He does sound. You know, he's an amazing person to know. But beyond that. I need to know people that own houses or I need to know a cafe owner because I might need to shoot in a cafe. I need to know a guy that owns a, a gas station that is okay with a film shooting at his gas station because I might have a gas station. You know what I mean? Like, so you have to like, you almost have to try to really be a chamber of commerce of like trying to know 
as many different disparate type of people as you can so that so that you have this collection database. Oh, I need a cafe. Let me call Susan at that Joe's cafe, you know? And so, yeah, I would say networking is everything on every single level. Well, you said it's kind of like uh, having a database. Is there anything physical or is it just something you keep in your head? I mean, how do you track all your connections? Absolutely, yeah. So I have a, I, I do a spreadsheet. I, I, I'm not great about it. I don't want to present myself as, I, I, I'm pretty laxed, but I do have a, I do create a couple spreadsheets with contacts um, and emails too. Like um, I use one of my emails for specifically more work related. And so what I do is I'll just like archive those emails into folders that are titled movie, the movie stuff. So I can always go back and reference, particularly for actors, by the way. Because, you know, I'm in South Texas and it's, you know, there's a ton of great actors, but it's not as easy to find actors as it would be, let's say, in New York or Los Angeles, particularly just because the casting, you know, there's a lot of casting agents out there in New York and, you know, and so I, I keep a database of actors, particularly because, yes, I said no to Karen for bloody, for domestic hell, but maybe Karen's perfect for Remy's demons, you know, so it's like you don't want to ever shut those doors down because you might Karen might have been the greatest actor ever for domestic health, you know? So it's just like being kind of aware of never saying no to somebody or, 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 you know, just keeping that door open.